what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's the King James Version. Don't be conformed to this world, Paul wrote. Instead, be transformed. Perhaps he was pleading. Perhaps he was demanding. Perhaps he was saying that you have to choose, either conform to the world as it is, or be transformed. You can't have it both ways. But he doesn't make it explicit. Yesterday, we looked at the world and its systems and structures that humans have organized and we acquiesced to, and we grieved. Today, we're going to look at transformation that Zanuff had given us such a good description of on Sunday, including that biological note. But first, I want to go back to the time of Jesus. Can you hear me all right? Is it coming through? I want to go back to the time of Jesus and look at the way that humans had organized relationships among people back then. In contrast, I want to see what Jesus was proposing and actually demonstrating. And then I want to look at how early friends experienced transformation. And finally, I want to hold up a more recently articulated process towards transformation. And from there, we can touch on the corporate aspects of transformation and the critical role of love in the process. Some of the anchor groups I know have been discussing transformation since Sunday, and it keeps floating around campus, so you all can add your wisdom and experience to my observations. All right, two millennia ago, there were two main constructs controlling the way people saw themselves and interacted with others. These two ideas were not unique to the Eastern Mediterranean. They informed practically all human societies and they still control much of life in, the, in a lot of the world today. These two powerful ideas can be identified with paired terms, honor, shame, and patron, client. It took me a while to get my head around the idea of what honor means in this context. I mean, I want to think of honor as integrity and trustworthiness and self-respect, but that's not what it means in this context. Here, it's all about reputation that you can demand from someone else. It's all about face. And the corollary is shame, when a person cannot command respect and is disrespected, reviled, and not accepted in the in-group. Honor has to do with power, power over others. It has to do with, it's competitive, it's zero sum, and it breeds violence. The other major construct, and intimately con connected with it, is the system of patronage and clientage. A strong person or family collects clients, that is, people or families that give them respect in return for protection and occasional favors. Strong clients collect weaker clients, and so on down the social hierarchy. And a broker can mediate between patrons and clients and carve out a nice little remunerative niche for himself. So this system, too, is about power, power over. It's competitive, 
It's zero sum and it breeds violence. Not unexpectedly, economics is also part of the system and it breeds gross inequality. So this was the system around the time of Jesus and into this system came Jesus. People assumed that this system was inevitable and immutable. And the games of honor were played by a very small percentage of very wealthy people, especially the Roman imperialists, and their clients among the subjective people. And the patronage game trickled all the way down to the peasants, who were the lowliest clients of a local landlord or an absentee landlord, a money lender, or simply someone who had more power over them. And in this system, someone who was destitute was totally outside of the system. No resources, no honor, no worth. So here comes Jesus, son of a carpenter. Now, I would have thought that a carpenter, as a skilled artisan, would have some, some standing. But no, not then. He had no land. He was considered a lowly peasant. John Dominic Crosan has described the twin roots of Jesus' teaching. He didn't only preach a new way, but he lived it, and his followers demonstrated it in their relationship with one another in their daily lives. One part of this revolutionary ministry was healing, free healing, and it was done in people's homes and out in the villages, just anywhere, an itinerant healer. He was not doing it in one place because in one place would have developed a clinic and you would have had patrons and you would have had clients and you would have had brokers. Think of the economics of a medieval pilgrimage site. Jesus rejected that model. The other part of Jesus' revolutionary ministry was his practice of an open table. He welcomed everyone and anyone to eat together, disregarding honor and custom and status. Eating was a really big deal in those days, and there were lots of written and unwritten rules about who you could eat with and who you couldn't eat with and how you went about your eating. And Jesus just ate with everybody. So this combination of itinerant heating, he, healing and open table eating was, as Crosan explained, and this is his quote, this was a challenge launched not just on the level of Judaism's strictest purity regulations, or even on that of the Mediterranean's patri patriarchal combination of honor and shame, patronage and clientage, but at the most basic level of civilization's eternal inclination to draw lines, in evoke boundaries, establish hierarchies, and maintain discriminations. It did not invite a political revolution, but it envisaged a social one at imagination's most dangerous depths. We'll talk about this idea of a social revolution at imagination's most dangerous depths over the next couple of days. Unfortunately, it, the, New Testament does not record much about Jesus telling us about transformation. 
In fact, that word that's translated transformation is only used four times in the New Testament, and twice it's in the incident about the transfiguration, which gives you a clue of what kind of a power, powerful word this is. Anyway, how else could people be enabled to actually live into his invitation to God's kingdom? How can someone discard the ingrained mental constructs of shame, subordination, subservience, worthlessness, and become emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually strong and free enough to accept and be accepted by others as an equal, male, female, pagan and observant Jew, learned scholar and illiterate pe peasant, mistress and slave, violent revolutionary and political collaborator, and all the other differences that we delight in creating. How can one be open to this without being transformed, regardless of the terminology used to describe the necessary change? So let me turn to something more familiar and certainly better documented, which is the process of transformation as experienced by early friends. They lived, as you know, in a time of upheaval when the givens of society were being questioned and a wide variety of alternatives were being offered, even as some people thought it was the end of life as we knew it. And there was widespread anxiety about sin and salvation, heightened by Calvin's harsh theology. There was also a yearning, a hunger, a divine discontent. So in the 17th century, most people who became friends, oops, I've pushed the wrong thing. Eli, help. Maybe it's coming back. Ah. All right. Most people who became friends were worked on internally by the Holy Spirit. By that I mean they were consciously hungering after righteousness. They were seeking to know God. Remember Mary Pennington obsession about wanting to know how to pray in the truth and in spirit. Then, at a public meeting, they heard a Quaker preach, and the words reached to the witness of God or Christ or that of God already at work in them. And this was often followed up with a session of private, intense, small group or one-on-one -on -one ministry. And then, there might be no other contract with Quakers until perhaps a different friend would come through the area later and clinch the convincement. Occasionally there was correspondence, but not that often. However, it was always clear that new friends, as well as more experienced ones, were to be taken to the feet of Christ and left there to learn from the inward teacher himself. This was not about Paul or Apollos or Timothy collecting their own sets of disciples. Whoops, I did it again. Okay. For us today, there isn't so much a worry about sin or fear of hellfire. I don't think I've ever met somebody who was afraid of hellfire. Rather, it seems to be an unshakable feeling that things are not right, that I'm out of alignment alienated, caught in meaninglessness, 
Today's issues, I think, are loneliness and anime. Individualism untethered from intimacy and community. Remember the song we sang Saturday night, began with a line about loneliness and then moved on into heaviness. However, today we have therapists and a whole pharmacopoeia and zillions of products and distractions for sale, all designed for a price to cure or distract you from this dis-ease. But then sometimes something happens. Pure, unexpected grace. One is suddenly held in an embrace of pure, unconditional love. Love that knows all of oneself and accepts it and loves it and yet paradoxically invites it to do better. For others, for the most of the rest of us, it's a much slower process that draws one bit by bit, forgetting and backsliding towards something better, towards love. Today, if we are willing to resist the blandishments offered in the marketplace of alternatives, alternatives that are designed to help us become adjusted to this sick society, then love or light or Christ or whatever word you want to use to describe this overwhelming love that we've experienced invites us to become more like itself, more like love. I entreat you, please, if you've had some experience like this, talk to others about it. Share what you've experienced. Help, uh, help the rest of us expand our expectation of what might be possible. Having experienced this love, we might open ourselves to the difficult and painful process which Margaret Fell invited incipient friends to allow the light to, as she said, reveal the secret subtlety of the enemy of your souls. Or in her very famous quotation, let the eternal light search you and try you for the good of your souls. It will rip you up and lie you open and make all manifest which lodgeth in you. Therefore, all come to this and by this be searched and judged and led and guided Gotta say, it really is not fun to see those parts of myself or that I would rather not see and I certainly don't want you guys to see or even know about. Many of you here are already well experienced in this process. So I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to the rest of us. although it would be very helpful if you would share your experience. So this is an invitation to the rest of us to dare to stick our toes, more than our toes, into the living water. The process isn't easy, but it is bound up with love. Sometimes the love comes at the beginning as an invitation. Sometimes partway along as an encouragement and sometimes not until an awful lot of internal pain has been felt. Sometimes this love is a direct mystical experience, but that doesn't happen to everybody. 
That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Sometimes it's refracted through human beings, somebody making a chance remark, or a sentence that you read, or something that someone shares with you. Sometimes it's through nature, or music, or poetry, or science, or any other experience that touches and opens your soul. What are the difficulties along the way as we move towards a different way of living? Well, John Woolman identified selfishness and greed as the main barriers between us and what he called divine wisdom or love. We could also add ego and fear. Fear, I think, is a big one. Woolman identified what he called the natural mind as the human inclination when it's not paying attention to love. He wrote, the natural mind is active about the things of this life, and in this natural activity, business is proposed and a will in us to go forward in it. And as long as this natural will remains unsubjected, so long there remains an obstruction against the clearness of divine light operating in us. But when we love God with all our heart and with all our strength, then in this love, we love our neighbors as ourselves, and a tenderness of heart is felt toward all people, even such who, as to outward circumstances, may be to us as the Jews were to the Samaritans. We are to keep our natural mind of greed and selfishness subjected to the focus on loving God, and then we are enabled to love our neighbors and all people. But this is still a little bit opaque for those of us who have not yet engaged deeply in the process. Thomas Kelly suggests that another reason for our reluctance, our failure to center down, is not a lack of time in our very crowded days, which is, that's our main excuse, right? But, and I quote, the lack of joyful, enthusiastic delight in the light that draws us Godward at every hour of the day and night. In our haste to love our neighbor, we forget about loving God with all our heart and mind and strength. It's not easy to love the ground of being or creative energy or even inward light or an amorphous spirit. It may be even more difficult to love the void, the great silence, the holy mystery. Whatever our concept of the divine is, transformation involves accepting its love for us and loving it enough to surrender into it. It has been suggested that the Holy Spirit's efforts to bring truth to each generation manifested in the mid-20th century with Alcoholics Anonymous. This program distills age-old truth into language that is accessible in our time. Essentially, it maps out the steps to transformation. The starting point is admitting we are powerless and our lives have become unmanageable. 
why is it that most of us have to be desperate and helpless before we're even willing to ask for help? George Fox, who found, when all my hopes in them and in all men were gone so that I had nothing outwardly to help me. And then comes the glimmer of hope. AA goes on, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, perhaps sanity is too secular or psychological a word to describe what, we, what we're grasping for. Substitute your own words. Salvation, righteousness, whatever you deeply long for, relationship with God, whatever. We came to believe, AA declares, that there is something a higher power, God, or as Fox discovered, a voice that said, there is one, even Christ Jesus, that can speak to thy condition. There is a power greater than ourselves, regardless of what words any of us choose to use to describe this reality. And now, the critical step. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, or her, or it. This isn't a test of doctrine. It is accepting the reality, however we experience it, however we understand it. We face a choice. Yes, I will turn my life over, or no thanks. Thanks just the same, but I can continue to deal. If we say yes, then comes the ripping open that Margaret Fell invited us to. Can't avoid it. In AA language, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And then, an interesting step for friends who did away with ritual confessions. Have we perhaps thrown away the baby with the bathwater? AA continues, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. That's not the end. We're not allowed to remain stuck in the muck. We reach the place where we are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So we go ahead and we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. It's interesting, there are separate steps. One for coming into willingness to be changed or transformed, and then asking or praying for it to happen. This is not an appeal to grit your teeth and by sheer willpower remove your own character defects. You pray to have them removed. Now this isn't the entire program, it does have 12 steps. There are five more, and they're all important, but you get the idea. And the good news is you don't have to have an addiction to alcohol to use this process. I think it could be modified and used in a friend's meeting to very good effect. Now a disclaimer. To the best of my knowledge, I have never had a drink of alcohol in my entire life. I, I still think it's a good program. Now, a critical part of AA is that you do not get transformed on your own. You need the help of a higher power, and you need other human beings. 
You need some people who are farther ahead in the process than you, and you need to reach back and offer a hand to those who are just beginning. It can't be done without a community. Now, if this sounds a bit like developing a system of patrons and clients, the crucial difference is the deliberate lack of power over. It's community rather than patronage, clientage. We're all just bozos in the back of the bus, needing and helping one another. So let me get back to reiterate that a transformed community is what Paul was talking about. Be ye transformed. The verb is second person plural. We know that a transformed community is made up of transformed individuals. And some work on the first personal part first so that they can help the group, and others will come along later when they see and feel the love and the joy in the group and they want to participate. So we all need to work on both parts of it. Sonny Kronk, perhaps the most important Quaker prophet in the late 20th century, wrote, a transformed life means living in new relationship with others. Indeed, God's healing power often comes to us through the love of others. In this way, the church community is the body of Christ in the world, continuing his work of redemption. Thus, a loving community is both an aid in our religious journey and an incarnation of the goal of that journey, i.e., God's kingdom on earth. I think that what really draws us in, draws us toward the divine, like a heliotropic flower toward the sun, is love. Morton Kelsey writes that we can make many true statements about the nature of love culled from the history of spirituality. There's books on it, lots of books. We can give clear examples of love in action. Go out and look at the AFSC exhibit. We can state how different it is from its imitations, and there's a lot of false prophets out there. But the only way to understand the incredible reality of divine love is to listen to those who have had direct encounters with divine love. So this should be a hallmark of all of our meetings. The place we go and the people we want to have conversations with as we share our deepest yearnings for the experience of divine love. You know, a friend's meeting where we encourage and help one another into transformation, where we expect transformation. Tomorrow, we'll take up the concept of renewing our minds.